Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Is There More? The podcast of semi-regular discussions about anything, everything, and occasionally nothing at all. My name is Cameron, and with me here today is my co-host, David. Hello, Cameron. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, David. I'm very excited to be jumping into uh, getting into this world of podcasting with you here today. We're going to be doing this little podcast here every so often, but uh, before we get too far into that, I guess you might want to know a little bit about us. So my name is Cameron. I'm an aspiring pediatric neurologist currently living in the cornfields of Iowa. I'll be moving to St. Louis this summer. Um, Going along with this career path I've chosen as an interest in medicine, an interest in the sciences in general, Uh, and I'll probably be bringing some of that to the podcast every now and then, but I'll also be bringing a few other topics, things like sports, music, literature, even food. I feel like that's a topic a lot of our fans will be able to relate with. So going along with that, I guess you could say I'll bring some of the things from the lighter side of life, but coming with a different perspective will be my co-host David. Well, I am an aspiring high school social studies teacher, and with that I will bring topics from history, politics, current events, economics, education, or anything else that might be related to my profession. In my past life, I was in the hospitality industry, and so maybe I can bring another perspective when Cam discusses his food topics. I also love uh, the outdoors, and I just picked up fly fishing, so maybe a conversation on that, or Star Wars, or sports, um, music, uh, not to the level of my co-host, but hopefully I can provide um, some sort of input that uh, that might be helpful in the conversation. And that's kind of the long and short of it. Every so often we're going to sit down together with a few topics that each of us chose to discuss and uh, get into it together, scratch the surface, and ask the question, is there more? for discussion and the first is Abraham Lincoln the six foot four inch president with a top hat uh, cam are you excited to talk about Abraham Lincoln today you know I am I know he adorns my pennies I know he's on every five dollar bill I've ever had and I know he's a tall guy with the top hat but I've always wondered is there more and that is a great segue so as we all know and we all learned in elementary school Abraham Lincoln um, was the president through the Civil War, but he and he was also assassinated uh, at the very end of the war on April 14th, 1865. That's what Lincoln is known uh, most for, the Civil War and the assassination, but there's also uh, much more about him. So we'll dive in a little bit to the assassination, um, to how he got into politics, and a few fun facts. Are you ready for this? I'm born ready. So on April 14th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln uh, was shot while watching a play in Ford's Theater uh, in Washington, D.C. 
So he was shot in the head by the assassin John Wilkes Booth. It actually took place right about 10, 15 p.m. when he was up in the, uh, the viewing booth, kind of at the top right of the stage. Um, his bodyguard was a guy named John Parker, who seems to have a fascinating story, and uh, he, he wasn't there. He was drinking in a saloon next door to the theater, so uh, Booth was able to just walk in um, to the room that Lincoln was watching the play from and shot him in the back of the head. There were a few doctors in attendance, and they were able to go up, kind of stabilize Lincoln, and get him across the street to the Peterson house where he died the next morning on April 15th, 1865. Uh, Cam, did you know all of that about his assassination? I feel like I knew a good bit of it, but the one key detail that I never knew before now was the relatively poor work done by this bodyguard. I would say not living up to the normal standards you'd be looking for in this in this profession. I would I would definitely agree. You know, the, the Secret Service was in existence, but it wasn't um, in the role of protecting the president at this point in time. They were just dealing with counterfeit money and things like that. But John Parker was actually a Washington, D.C. Metro officer, and he seemed to have a history of poor performance. Now, I, I don't think that's too surprising given he was drinking while guarding the president, but it's uh, too bad that he was selected to guard Lincoln on the night he was killed. You'd think they'd have some better uh, screening policies than that. Exactly, especially after Lincoln had an assassination attempt just about eight months before. He was riding a horse, and uh, someone took a shot at him and actually hit the top hat. Uh, another, another thing I didn't know, so I love that it hit the top hat, because what a great use for uh, that top hat than to distract would-be assassins with thinking you had an extra eight inches at the top of your head there. So you would think after that experience that Lincoln and his bodyguards would be a bit more careful, but unfortunately they were not. So Lincoln died on April 15th, 1865. Uh, he lived a, a great life. He was the president that uh, led the United States through the Civil War, uh, had some genius political moves um, throughout the war, and made some memorable speeches. And he also had led a pretty interesting life even uh, before his time in politics. So with that, we'll get on to a little bit of his early life and, and uh, leading up to where he became the president. Uh, Lincoln was born on February 12th, 1809 in Kentucky, and he was actually mostly uh, self-educated. He, he only went to school for about 18 months out of his entire life, which seems crazy when you're thinking about a president of the United States. Yeah, and uh, not even just president of the United States, even some of the stuff he did before that was uh, things that most people wouldn't be able to get by with on a self-education these days. No, no, not at all. And in fact, uh, when he was growing up, most people felt that he was lazy. He, he didn't like to work. You know, Kentucky was a part of the frontier, and he really didn't like that type of work. And he preferred reading, writing, poetry, uh, studying um, some of the you know, Greek philosophers. And, and that was what he loved, not this uh, cowboy ranch-style life. Um, although he was very strong, he was athletic, he was very good with an axe, and he was known for his fighting and wrestling abilities. And, uh, you know, I can really relate to this. I, I've 
also often been described as strong, athletic, great with an axe, but, uh, you know, I prefer these more artistic pursuits, so that's why many have never seen me perform those kind of those tasks, I think. I did not realize you were so good with an axe. Well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a skill that you don't get to show off very often, but comes in handy when you need it. It does, and it also came in handy uh, for Lincoln. So he, so you have this guy who didn't like the frontier life. He loved reading, writing, and poetry. Yet he was still strong. Still, uh, he could still do the tasks that uh, men were expected to do uh, at this time. Um, but it, it was just kind of a well-rounded individual, I would say. Would you Would you agree with that assessment, Cam? You know, I. I, uh, I I didn't know as much about him before we started talking about this recently, and uh, I was surprised that he'd done as many things as he did because he did, you know, he went through this path so quickly to the presidency. Uh, one would think he had more of a very guided, uh, a guided route, I guess, without much dalliance into other kind of activities. But he really that wasn't the case with him. No, no, it wasn't at all. And so after he grew up in Kentucky, he moved to Illinois, uh, and that's really where his political and business life took off. He purchased his first business in 1832, um, worked uh, in that business uh, for the next few years, and in 1846, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, which is, is surprising given his lack of education, um, but also that, you know, he, he came from the, the frontier. And at that time, not many people were able to move into, into some of the older states and take a role in the political life. And he, he stayed in the U.S. House of Reps until, uh, until he was elected president in 1860, which, again, he, uh, he, it was kind of a, a rough time. In, in the country's history, and we'll get to what happens uh, shortly after his election with the start of the Civil War and the secession of the South, but it was, it was one of those pivotal elections that you can look back in American history and realize, okay, that was a really, really important um, election for the direction of the country. So after the election... Um, Lincoln takes office, and as I said, the South secedes and the Civil War begins. Um, originally, the, the Civil War was about much more than slavery. And, and what Lincoln did uh, shortly after the start, actually in, in June of 1862, he delivers the Emancipation Proclamation, which does what, Cam? Frees the slaves, David. It does free the slaves, but here was the political genius behind Lincoln's moves, is he delivered this proclamation, and what it did is it actually only freed the slaves in the Deep South, not along the border states, not, and obviously the North didn't have slaves, but it, what it did is it freed slaves in a, con or in a part of a country that he didn't have control over. And so he took this tertiary issue for the civil for the civil war and made it the primary issue so that foreign countries couldn't back the south because most of them had already banned slavery the border states um, that were kind of in in the middle of the issue they ended up leaning more towards the north and it truly it, it changed the focus of the civil war and the north ended up having more african-american regiments 
and and it it started the tide to to get for the for the North to win the war for the Union to to beat uh, the Confederacy in the Civil War. I mean, when you think about the political genius of this move, I, I don't know if there's anything comparable. Yeah, it's brilliant, right? I mean, you you find a way to make the focus this this horrible human rights issue um and like you say through that you avoid most people being able to back the south especially foreign countries um but you do that with without removing this right to own slaves from the bordering waffling states right so you have found a way to declare this thing as evil and make it the primary focus while somehow still allowing some of your people that are supporting you to uh to maintain the ability to to do that, um, which I mean, yeah, like you say, as you, as far as brilliance, that's uh, it's uh, it's hard to not get a lot of people supporting you after that. I guess after that move, that's that's very true. It's uh, you know, and and then you think about this decision being made with uh, the lack of education that Lincoln had, and and uh, you know, it's it, he was clearly well-educated, just not in the, the typical sense of the word. And he used his critical thinking skills and his advisors, and, and he was able to come up with, with a plan that ultimately led to the, the Union's victory in the Civil War. The second most iconic piece of, of Lincoln's presidency uh, is the Gettysburg Address. So the Battle of Gettysburg actually took place in July of 1863, and in November, Lincoln traveled to Gettysburg to deliver the iconic address that's uh, chiseled in stone at the Lincoln Memorial. Have you ever been to the memorial, Cam? I have been to the memorial. I'll be heading back there in just a short amount of time to check this out again. Um, I, I remember something about that memorial really was just so powerful and impressive in a way that I'm not always struck by memorials in that way. Um, but that was definitely one of the ones that really left an impact on me. Yeah, it, it is. If you, if you're looking at the giant statue of Lincoln and you look off to the left, I believe the Gettysburg address is on the wall and I'm pretty sure most of us have learned, or most of us learned the, the Gettysburg address back in elementary or middle school. I remember having to memorize it and recite it in front of a class it was incredibly short, but it was powerful, it was well-written, and it was a, a hallmark of Lincoln's presidency. And, you know, so remarkable, I guess, also with the Emancipation Proclamation, when you look at, we talk about how little formal education he had at this point, but even how little on-the-job experience he had at this point. I mean, granted, Gettysburg, you're towards the end of the first term, but Emancipation Proclamation comes, I mean, two years into his presidency. Um, really amazing the impact he was able to have on such little experience when you look at the whole picture there. That's, that's a great point. He, uh, I mean, even, even in his entire political history, he, he didn't get into politics until 1846. And you're talking less than 20 years later, he's delivering one of the most iconic speeches in American history. I can't really think of anything that could be compared other than um, maybe FDR's date of infamy speech that he gave after the, the attack on Pearl Harbor. 
I mean, you know, there's some that are up there, but I think you hit on a big piece of this is the brevity and the power that it holds despite being as short as it was. So it's able to, you know, I think every line was impactful because there was no filler. It was just straight to what needed to be said. And I, I, you know, I think it's a, it's a piece that really resonates with a lot of people. I agree. So uh, if we had more time, maybe I would recite what I remember from the Gettysburg Address, but I will, uh, I will save that for later. And so you all don't have to go through that. I know, I know you probably appreciate that, Cam. I do, but I bet we can find some time before we're all said and done here. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure we can. So he moved on from the uh, Gettysburg Address and then he went right into uh, campaign for re-election, and he, he of course won re-election in 1864, was re-inaugurated in 1865, and he was assassinated just a few months later, as we talked about on April 14th, 1865. So you have this really fascinating life of an individual born in the frontier, self-educated, moved to a new city, finally got involved, or a new state, finally got involved in politics, eventually became the president, led the country through the most difficult period that the country's ever experienced, finally makes it to the end of that, and is killed by John Wilkes Booth. Um, it it, it's really, really is a fascinating study, and I personally consider Lincoln to be the best president um, to, to hold the office in the history of the United States. Where, where would you put him, Cam? Do you, do you have anyone that might go above him? Um, you know, I'm, I've always been a little impartial to FDR, but I, you know, what I, what I would have to give you in favor of Lincoln is when you look at how much he did with so little time, right? I mean, um, and then to think about what could, to look at how he did that in one term with a nation that was uh, in turmoil almost feels like a generous word. Uh, to think about what he might have then been able to do, despite the, the nation, you know, obviously a lot of reconstruction happening, but to think about what he might have done without the backdrop of a war distracting from from being able to accomplish things. Um, you know, I, I guess... I, I, if I look just purely at, well, I guess we could call it electoral efficiency or something. We can get advanced metrics on this. But if you look at just what he did in such a short time, it's really hard. I mean, I definitely couldn't fault you for calling him the top. And I think we've had several presidents that, that were great. But, you know, Lincoln Lincoln stood out most definitely. And a, and a couple other fun facts about Lincoln that, that stand out is he was the only president to ever hold a patent. Uh, now, this, this patent was very interesting. Um, back in his early days when he was practicing law, um, which we didn't even get into in, in his life uh, or in the history of his life, but he was practicing law and many of the, course of, of the court cases uh, that he fought in were shipping companies versus bridge building companies because the ships would run into the bridges and either the bridges would fail or the ship would fail. And so he actually developed this system to hold the boats up. It was like a flotation device to keep the boats from sinking until they could remove everything and everyone from the boat. I just think that's a genius idea. It's, it's brilliant and it's also just so out there. If you ask me to guess what kind of patent... Abraham Lincoln held something 
even close to that would never have crossed my mind. No, no, same here. I was, I was surprised to read that. Now, Lincoln was also the first president to have a beard in office. I, uh, I think that look should definitely come back. Uh, we're getting to a time in, in our culture where I think it might be soon. Um, I was actually surprised he was the first, though, because I think of that as being such a classic look. You know, not the very early presidents where you have these clean-cut wooden teeth gentlemen, but... With curly um, white hair. Exactly. But uh, I was a little surprised. He was the first one to be bearded in office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was also the first one to have an inaugural photograph taken. I, also surprising to me, I, I probably should, should know when photographs started, but... Uh, you know, it just seems like a lot of these things would have happened before he popped up. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, my thought was the photograph came after him, but uh, but apparently it didn't. You know, I, I guess I have seen, I think there's one known photograph of the Gettysburg Address. And so, with, you know, and you can kind of see him off in the distance a bit, but I, uh, without thinking about it, I thought photographs came later in the 19th century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As we said, uh, Lincoln practiced law without... A degree, you know, we we talked about him only going to school for eighteen months. Now that's fine and dandy if you're just a, a normal guy walking around town, but he was able to practice law, which is unbelievable. Yeah, it uh, a different era, I guess. I feel like no one's going to be able to get by with that approach today. So probably not something to aspire to for any of our current listeners. Yeah, I I, I would also recommend avoiding uh, avoiding that career path. Um, you know, one, one thing that I love about Lincoln is he did not have a middle name, nor did he like going by Abe. He would go by Abraham, but his, his, the name he preferred was just Lincoln. Just Lincoln. Nothing, nothing else, nothing special. He just wanted to be called Lincoln. And, uh, you know, that's just a boss move right there. Not, not a lot of one-named folks in society, uh, so when you go that route, I mean, that really, that puts you in that upper echelon. It does. And then the final fun fact about Abraham Lincoln is he was actually the first president born outside of the original 13 colonies. Um, as I thought about that more, I don't know if that's necessarily surprising to me, um, just b- because this is, you know, the, the country is less than 100 years old at this point. Um, and so most of the population remains in the 13 colonies, but he was born in Kentucky, and he was the first president to, to be born away from where the country started. And honestly, the more surprising part about his birth to me was that he was born in Kentucky, because I associate him so fully with Illinois, right? Like, he, he is the like quintessential politician from Illinois, but... He actually was from Kentucky. So that a uh, little learning point for me as well. Well, that is a, a little bit more about Abraham Lincoln, his, his life and his death. And we hope that we were able to, to scratch a little bit deeper on, uh, on, on this topic. And, and maybe you learned a little bit more about Abraham Lincoln and the life he lived and the, the, the way he died. And, uh, to lighten things up a little bit, um, we'll go ahead and transition to our, our next topic for today, which is National or International or Galactic Record Store Day. Right. Which one so of those is correct? One of those is correct. We'll, uh, 
we'll clear that up as we go along, I suppose. Um, so Record Store Day. David, did you know, so recently we had uh, Record Store Day a couple of weeks, weekends ago now. Um, were you even aware there was a Record Store Day before, we, before I told you we were going to be discussing this? I had no idea until you mentioned it. No idea. See, and I feel like, you know, that's uh, probably not uncommon to not know that this is there, but this has actually been an event that's been around since 2008, the first one happening in April 19th of that year, uh, and it's actually grown quite a bit. There are now stores that participate in this event on the third, excuse me, third Saturday of every April, and uh, they're participating on every continent except for one. David, would you have a guess which continent that might be? I would probably say Antarctica, even though uh, I believe scientists need access to record stores. You would think so. And uh, I mean, I guess if you want to be the one to bring the music to the penguins, uh, they also deserve a little consideration. But at this point, Antarctica, the sole representative without a record store day participating store. I guess that doesn't mean there's no record stores, just that none are participating. Well, they need to get on that. Yeah. All right. Well, another time. I guess we'll, uh, next episode, we'll take a look at if uh, Antarctica actually has any record stores. So Record Store was developed with the purpose of uh, really just celebrating the spirit of independent record stores. Uh, they have some ways they define what an independent record store is. Not to burden us with going into that. Essentially, going and buying records at your local Borders Books. Oh, Borders is gone, huh? Sorry. Rest in peace, Borders Books. Uh, Barnes & Noble uh, isn't going to count for this. They're really looking at your tiny, your brick-and-mortar kind of shops that have been a cornerstone of your community for years that you've probably walked by without even noticing many, many times. So um, I, have a, I have a question on that note. Does that mean that these larger stores are not allowed to participate in Record Store Day, or they don't, or they don't market towards those stores? You know, I'm, I don't think there would really be any way they could prevent it, but it's definitely not marketed towards those those kind of stores. Um, I mean, I'm sure they get some benefit of uh, Record Store Day. I mean, you think about there are probably there's still some communities that maybe don't have a physical record store anymore, or. Uh, that haven't seen that resurgence that's brought that back to their community. So uh, I don't think they're going to turn anybody away, but it's definitely not the focus of this event. Um, and part of that is because uh, it's really, like I mentioned, to celebrate kind of the spirit of these stores. And, and to go along with that, every store kind of participates in its own way. I've heard about a lot of different things from uh, concerts being put on to more barbecues and cookouts and just being more of almost a community event than a, than a sales event. But... Um, Despite having this approach to, you know, looking at really the spirit of the store, there is also a major economic component to it. And a lot of this is driven by these special releases that come out for Record Store Day. Uh, there were actually 347 Record Store Day releases this year. Wow. How do, who were some of the artists? Uh, so some of the big, there were a few different types. So uh, there were a bunch of David Bowie re-releases um, that were done, kind of special Record Store Day releases. Um, I believe Metallica had some of theirs redone as well. Uh, they also released some strange, like, split seven inches with bands from, like, the 60s and bands from more modern doing different songs that you may not expect. So there's everything from special releases to re-releases to just repackagings of other albums. Um, but altogether, 347 different units were, uh, put together, or different types of product for this. Um, and with that, there's been a really major financial impact on these stores. Uh, in 2013, so Record Store Day was responsible for what was the single 
greatest weekly sales since they started tracking in 1991. 244,000 units were sold um, in that week of Record Store Day in 2013. Wow. Wow. Wow, yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) In 2014, uh, Record Store Day week helped these independent stores claim their highest share of physical album sales since that same period, since 1991. So in that week, when you looked at all of the physical albums sold... um, from you know whether it was your Barnes and Noble, your online, uh, your online sales, or these independent stores, twenty percent were uh, sold by these small record stores in that week of sales. Man, that uh, uh, well, one that has to be an incredibly difficult number to track. But two, I I would not expect the shares to be to be that high for these independent record stores. Yeah, and you know. What I didn't, uh, could have done a little more research, I guess, and seen what the shares tend to be on a normal week, but, uh, I mean, when you think about the ease and convenience of just ordering from Amazon or even just from going to a, you know, a big box store down the street, uh, 20% is a pretty major share to be pulling down, even for just a week. Uh, I mean, especially now when you consider that every store with electronics sells records. Right. I mean, it's it's not like I this this might have been less surprising to me uh if these were 2008, 2009 numbers, you know, early on in the record store day. Um when that hadn't quite been the trend, but you're right. This is this is a big trend that's creeping into your Best Buys, your Barnes and Nobles. I mean, anywhere you go basically, you're going to Urban Outfitters, right? You're going to walk in and you can find uh a good stack of vinyl for sale. So this has obviously had a big impact financially and had a big impact on the demand, but there's an interesting increase or uh, interesting limitation that is in the supply, and that is in that there are only 20 production facilities in the United States responsible for filling all of these orders. So these 20 are still, it's, it's limited because it's very expensive to get into the game, but also as recently reading, that actually people just aren't making these production, these record presses anymore. So the only way to get more presses in rotation is to find plants that have maybe gone out of business or to find presses that uh, maybe that current facility has that have been out of commission for a while and to rehab and get them going again. But no one's making more of these at this time. So the startup cost and the startup accessibility are both incredibly low to increase this, this supply. Do you think there will ever be an increase in 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 the supply? You know, it's hard it's hard to say. Like I said, I've 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 been reading a bit about some of these plants that have been um, rehabbing their old machines, um, and you know, this is way out of my area of expertise. But it seems like depend. I, this seems like if someone were to to get into the game of producing more presses, we would have seen it at this point. I mean, this is such a hot commodity right now. It's the sales are just surging. Um, I, I worry a bit that if it hasn't happened now, there's, there's definite limitations that are just not going to be getting out of the way. <laughs> um, so the big problem with this, with the supply is that there's been a little bit of criticism that uh, independent releases and uh, less major artists sometimes get pushed aside uh, both for these special Record Store Day releases, but also just for 
these larger runs that are coming of um, of uh, more major releases. So where you used to not really for for a long time, the only people putting out these vinyl were you know more independent artists. Uh, it's always been a staple of like the punk rock community, but some alternative rock kind of bands. Um, you know, it was just a smaller group that were still putting out records. But now, everything that gets released seems to get a vinyl release. So, going along with that, I mean, these presses have had to prioritize. I mean, are you going to put out the newest record from someone who's maybe kind of big in the Northeast but hasn't gotten a lot of play yet? Or are you going to put out a vinyl pressing of Drake's View from the Six? You know, what's going to be more, uh, what's going to bring you more profit? It's, it's, it's definitely, once you get those presses going, it makes more sense to make more of those at one time than to be turning them over, making a lot of smaller orders, um, doing things like that. So there's been some increase in turnaround time from these artists getting their records to the press to getting the finished product, and the criticism there is this impacts how some of these smaller artists have to plan their releases, how they have to plan their tours, um, they're having to submit their masters much earlier before they would go on tour because a lot of them, you know, they depend on sales of these records, you know, out of their van when they're doing these tours, right? So um, it's not like they can they can wait and they can really go on, you know, the strength of their name like some of these artists can when they release things. They have to get out there, get the excitement, and make the sales right in the moment. A lot of times. So this is kind of a big this is a big issue and. Uh, a lot of people feel like Record Store Day just further contributes to this. Every time people are putting in these special releases, these re-releases, um, it just adds a little bit more of a log jam to the system. Uh, so it's kind of a concern. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yes, I do. And I wanted to play a little devil's advocate here to see what, what you thought. Now, if these main blockbuster names are releasing more and more vinyls that could get more people interested which in turn would promote uh further facilities do you think that there could be a correlation there i mean if the big names are getting involved it's more likely to get more people interested and then more people will be producing these records so i mean that if you look at basic you know economic principles that makes sense um I guess the big question that I just don't have a good answer for is is what roadblocks are there from getting more presses going? Um, if if it's just you know there there is a point where that opportunity cost to get new presses and get into the game isn't worth what you might be able to to uh, increase in in supply. So um, I don't know enough about the real nuts and bolts of that to have an idea, but I do. I think you have a good point. I think that you know, Taylor Swift and even, you know, someone like a Jack White getting so big into the vinyl game uh, makes it a little bit more of an accessible medium. Um, and at the very least, it's probably bringing more people into these record stores than otherwise would be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and once you're there, maybe you are finding the records that did finally get out from these independent artists and you're giving them a try. So, I mean, right, there's always some downstream effects that um, simply getting more people interested, uh, has some benefit. So, um, you know, just, those are some of the criticisms that are out there. I don't think it's not a real cut and dry. I mean, you raise a great counterpoint. Um, I don't necessarily know where I fall on the issue. I, I think there's, 
I think there's some pros and cons either way. And I, I think the big question really is um, how long might it be or have we already hit this point where Record Store Day transitions from really being something about the spirit of the independent record shop to just being another major commercialized event? I, I think we've reached that point. Uh, you know, it's it's almost like another Hallmark holiday where, you know, you, you, you throw this date out there so that people go to independent record stores and buy these new releases. Now, I have one independent record store here in town that, that we've both been to, and it's, uh, I love going there. It's, it's a great place, and if they can get more business, uh, that's awesome, because that means they're going to be staying open longer and making more money um, to bring in more records and I get to enjoy that more so it's a little bit selfish but we aren't necessarily giving some of these these more touring or or newer artists the opportunity to take advantage of of this celebration you know going along with that I guess there have been equal complaints if not more complaints about you know reimbursement to the artist on streamed music versus actual purchasing physical media right so there is this delay, but what's the payoff in the end? The same, and, and, and this is really something that's hard to argue with. There might be a delay in getting that record back, but you get more for your output as an artist on physical media. And when you look at physical media, I mean, vinyl compared to other formats out there is really thriving. In 2015, they finished their 10th consecutive year of growth. They'd increased 32% over sales in 2014 in the United States alone. That's an impressive number. It really is. And I mean, you think about how... I, I don't think that's a number that's going to be slowing down. It seems like this is a format that's really bringing more and more people in. And with that growth, these independent record stores, like the one you're mentioning, those account for 45% of the sales of vinyl records. That's that's wonderful. I, I You know, you always love to shop at the mom-and-pop stores, but sometimes those big box stores or Amazon or eBay are going to have better selection or better pricing, but these independent record stores are, are so important, too. A lot of times, you know, a lot of times these are places that really weathered the storm of those, you know, we this obviously we went through a digital, just a di- digital transition, I guess, in the music industry, and a lot of you know, stores like that went out of business. And a lot of them got by selling you CDs, selling what little vinyl was still being produced, and, uh, you know, are now reaping the benefits of going through some, what I imagine were pretty dry years for them in a lot of cases. And now the impacts are pretty undeniable. When you compare vinyl sales, according to the RIAA, um, in 2015, vinyl made $416 million in revenue. And that compared to Total ad-based streaming across, you know, Spotify, uh, YouTube, uh, Pandora, whatever kind of streaming services, totaled three hundred eighty-five million altogether. I would not have guessed that those numbers would be where they're at. And part of that is because, I mean, I imagine people don't think that because you think about how often, even people who like vinyl, I mean, still streaming quite a bit, I think, and depending on certain situations. And when you look at the most streamed artist on Spotify, so this is just one format, one artist, granted multiple albums, but one artist on one format, Drake was the most streamed artist of 2015, 1.8 billion plays. Several artists would have been getting something close to that on multiple formats, right? 
pulling in $385 million. When you look at the single top-selling record of 2015, do you have a guess what that would have been? I think that I own it, Cam. I'm going to say Adele's newest record. All right, Adele's 25 came in, and their contribution, the number one top-selling album of 2015, sold 116,000 units. Such a discrepancy. Huge discrepancy, and then when, I mean, obviously you get many plays out of a purchase of a record, but uh, to see those revenue numbers and compare those, you know, those actual the plays versus the units sold, uh, it really is pretty remarkable. And then when you look at the top ten selling records of 2015, we mentioned Adele. You see a pretty impressive blend of uh, of artists on this list. So Taylor Swift is number two. Uh, then at three and four, you have Pink Floyd and the Beatles coming in. Number five, we take a little uh, side trip over to Miles Davis. And then we get into some alternative stuff. Six, seven, and eight, Arctic Monkeys, Sufjan Stevens, and Alabama Shakes. Uh, And then nine was Hozier. And then ten was the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack, which is, I mean, perhaps the most indicative of this blend of new and old, right? The hot new movie using an entirely classic playlist. Um, Pretty symbolic of, I guess, what what people are really looking for in, in... buying records. And has that been, I guess, has that been your experience as you? I know you're a a relatively recent convert to the format. Has that been your experience in in getting into this? It is. You know, the experience of listening to a record is so much different than turning on Pandora or Spotify or whatever app I might choose to use on any given day. It's, you know, there's obviously a method to the madness of putting an album together and getting the chance to hear the growth of the album, to hear how the side transitions take place, you know, to kind of hear some of the quirks in the vinyl or in the music that that comes out of your system, all of that got me into it. It's more of an experience than simply a a noisemaker or a filler that you might use if you're using a digital music app. I mean, I think you nailed a lot of the big points. I feel like in the digital, what we traded for convenience when we went to digital, digital music was a loss with that really just almost physical interaction with the music. Um, and you hit on a lot of things, everything from just how, putting it on the turntable and then setting the needle to it to, uh, you know, getting that look at that album art actually on a big, you know, 12 by 12 box rather than uh, seeing it on a little iPhone screen, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that are just enhanced in that experience where, you know, obviously you go into the gym and you're running, you're going to keep, you're going to take your digital music, right? I mean, going in the car, obviously pop on the iPod, listen to whatever. Um, But I think people have started to, I like to think what has drawn people to it is really like you're saying, more of the experience of it. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that's really encouraging to see. I think there's a lot of positives that come from it. Um, I think, you know, even if there are some difficulties with uh, getting things pressed, I mean, seeing these kind of revenues uh, are definitely good for the artists. Um, and, you know, it's at the very least, it gives you another reason to go to the Goodwill and dig around, right? It, it is, and it's so accessible. Uh, I know my case is extreme, but I got my entire system for around $10.00. And, and then I had records given to me, and there's a used record store, and there's Goodwill, and there are garage sales. I mean, you can really get going uh, relatively inexpensively. And, and it, it's, you know, in, where that's compared to, 
you know, everyone always already has a phone or a computer or an iPad or something they can listen to digital music, but to have such an experience that you can dive into for little money, I think uh, it is what will get more people into it. And their favorite artists are now coming out with with vinyl records and you, you, you know, you can listen to some of the older artists or pick up new people like Taylor Swift and Adele. Right. And, you know, I think one of the smartest things they've started doing is including those little digital download cards when you buy new records. So you get the best of both worlds. Um, I would recommend though, just as we get ready to sign off, I think if anyone's trying to put together a system for 10 bucks, they might get a little bit frustrated. You were uh, you had quite a bit of luck in putting that together. I did. I had the turntable given to me and got speakers and uh, and a receiver at Goodwill for seven dollars and uh, spent a couple bucks on uh, uh, the little box to make you know to transition the sound. Yep. So you know you did a good job. I'm proud of you. But uh, hopefully others can have that much luck getting into it, and hopefully maybe somebody out there will be interested in giving it a try now that they've heard this. I um, I hope so too. I, you know, I, I know it's been something we've both enjoyed, and, uh, you know, I definitely, I'm not looking forward to moving four crates of records with me in a few weeks here, but, uh, you know, small price to pay, I guess. Well, that will conclude our discussion for today. We thank you all for joining us on this first episode of Is There More? And uh, we hope we're able to to shed a little bit of light on both Record Store Day and Abraham Lincoln. So we look forward to having you back again in the future as we take a look at a few different topics and ask, is there more? 